Hello, welcome to the Trainer Tools Podcast. I'm John Tomlinson. I'm here today with Dr. Alex Young. Hello, Alex. How are you? Hey, John. Yeah, really good. Thanks. Thanks so much for having me on today. No, well, thanks for coming on. It's, um, you, you know, we talked about this before, but I've got this big thing that I talk about a lot of work about just how good hospitals are and the medical profession is generally at really embedding learning in the whole way the thing works. And, and, and we talk a lot about things like learning organizations and really no one does it better than the hospital. And yet we don't often sit to look and learn from what hospitals do. So I'm really grateful for you taking your time, t- taking your time, spending your time with us today to talk about that. No, looking forward to it as well. I think there's uh, lots of learning points that can translate into you know lots of other sectors. And uh, I've certainly found that in my transition from being a practicing trauma and orthopedic surgeon to now uh, running a learning and development company. So hopefully I can share a lot of those learnings with, with everybody listening. Yeah, and I'll just apologize in advance if you can hear background noise at my end. You may hear some sort of birds tweeting and, and other things. It's, I've got the window open and your medical training, I'm sure, will support me in this. That I do not want to asphyxiate. And if I close the window, it's so <laughs> hot here today. If I close the window, I will possibly die in the middle of this. And, and I know you wouldn't want to be responsible for that. So that, I can confirm that would be bad as a health professional. Yeah, yeah, dead, being dead. So... Um, I am going to leave the window open, I'm afraid. So if it does get particularly noisy at some point, I might change and close it. But So um, let's delve a bit deeper into this because, um, first of all, I'm kind of really interested in what systemically hospitals kind of have in place, medical profession has in place to really make sure that learning happens all the time, not just in formal situations of a, of a training course or, or equivalent. So do you want to just talk about that a little bit first and we'll see how if we can divide that up to give it some structure? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think um, probably the, the easiest place to start is thinking about the types of people that you have in a um, hospital environment who need um, learning and development training. That's basically divided between people like medical students or nursing students who are training um, and who are at work, who are doing things like placements. So they've been through lecture-based training, a lot of theory, and then they're looking at then implementing that and putting it into practice um, in the clinical setting. So there is a certain amount of funding that comes from universities that is given to hospitals in um, the areas around those universities to then train up those students. And those students take part in elements of real clinical management and leadership, but obviously under supervision. And a lot of that is sort of observational training. So right down at the bottom of kind of your Bloom's taxonomy. And then once those those students graduate, they become actual sort of practicing doctors and nurses or physios or, or any other type of health professional. Um, and they take on those clinical responsibilities and are obviously paid then for their service commitments to the hospital. And that's when it becomes really interesting because you're still described as a doctor in training or a nurse in training, even though you've done your five or six years of, of university in the case of doctors. And what then happens is you've got this trade-off between providing uh, your service commitments and responsibilities, looking after the patients, um, performing on-call periods, doing operations in my case, uh, while also taking the time to learn. And a lot of that learning then happens either on the job, in what's called simulation centers, uh, through centralized regional teaching um, and really in people's own time, really with the incentive of, of becoming the best caregivers uh, doctors and nurses can be so that when they reach the end of their training, which for most hospital doctors is probably an additional uh, six to seven years on top of their five to six years at medical school, GPs is a little bit quicker, but that is continuous learning journey and even when you do then qualify as a consultant in a hospital or as a family doctor or general practitioner 
you are continuously learning and need to stay up to date and, and go through what's called revalidation or certification. So lifelong learning for, for basically all of those individuals from a, a very early stage from, you know, 17, 18, when you, you uh, commit to doing a medical degree or, or nursing um, degree to then becoming a consultant and eventually retiring, uh, you know, in your sort of uh, 60s, 70s or, or as long as that's going on at the moment. So there's quite a lot in there that's quite hardwired in formal learning. Um, I was interested in sort of teasing out that sort of informal part of it because I think that's the bit as well where, again, hospitals differ quite a lot from most workplaces. And at one point there you said, for example, is around the fact that they're called doctors in training for another six or seven years, which is an enormous amount of time. During that period of time, they're presumably actually working as a doctor. And me as a patient wouldn't necessarily notice the difference. Yeah, that, that's absolutely right. So, um, you know, when you graduate from medical school, you're obviously paid, you're a doctor, um, you are working, you're looking after patients and you progress up that career ladder uh, for, for you know quite a long period of time, as I mentioned. But you are continuously learning and um, you're learning new skills, so practical skills uh, on the wards or in operating theatres. Right. You're also learning things like soft skills, um, so how you communicate with patients, how you deal with difficult and challenging circumstances, as well as having to pass exams at different stages. And those exams are either written or they're practical um, exams, uh, depending on what sort of subspecialty or career you choose in medicine. So there's a huge amount of, of, of learning that kind of goes on, some formal, some competency-based, all of it summative um, to ensure that doctors, nurses, anyone treating patients uh, is held to a high standard and is safe to practice at each stage. That's really interesting. So then that, that's still within a structure then. So there's still kind of curriculums and curricula that people have to follow and there's certain points of checking where there are there's some kind of testing at various points. So that's still quite structured. Uh, yeah, absolutely. So um, when you when you sort of graduate from medical school, obviously the medical school um, are the uh, the kind of governing body, uh, and the general medical council are the the sort of higher body who set the the syllabus for all graduating doctors and nurses, so that they are are competent to to then go on and provide care to patients. When you graduate, that is then slightly taken over by what's called the Royal Colleges, um, which is a very sort of hoity-toity name for what is basically, uh, again, a a sort of a postgraduate style university where a syllabus is set for the different specialties in medicine. So there's the Royal College of Surgeons, uh, there's the Royal College um, of Medicine, there's the Royal College of Nursing. Um, Each of those sets their own uh, syllabus that matches to the development of, of doctors and nurses in training and they have exams at set periods so for surgery for example two years after you graduate you can sit what's called the membership of the Royal College of Surgeons which is a written and practical exam looking at basic surgical training uh, to ensure that you're competent to progress in your career to, to the next stage and then when you complete your training, you do something called the Fellowship of the Royal College of Surgeons, which is a, a harder, more specific exam, again, split up into a written paper and a practical element as well. Again, that, 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 that's all that pretty structured stuff. And it's, I should just say as well, by the way, you're talking about these kind of royal colleges as, as the institutions. Obviously, we're talking about the British Health Service here, as your listeners may have spotted from Alex's accent, that we are talking about the British system. I'm sure there are similar systems in, in other countries. But the, the the point we're really talking about here is that even after the sort of years of graduation, there is this kind of learner driver period where you're six, seven years under with that structured supervised period. When that happens, when you graduate from that, the fact that the training bit drops off, and you, you take your L plates off from that point onwards. Is there a psychological difference then for a doctor in thinking that's it? I'm trained now. I don't need to learn anymore. I mean, how does that um, kind of 
change. Yeah, I, I think it's interesting. So, so I don't think you ever stop learning, even when you become, say, a consultant or you're a GP partner, um, just because there's so much research um, that goes on uh, in, in the healthcare settings. So new medications come out, new ways of managing patients, new new standards are sort of set by organizations like NICE and the World Health Organization. So you continuously need to sort of do what's called revalidation and stay up to date. I, I would actually say that the biggest sort of mindset change occurs when you graduate from medical school, um, where you're sort of sat within quite a protected learning environment, that being a university where you are given a curriculum, you're asked to pass exams. You then obviously graduate and that's your first job as a, as a new doctor, nurse, physio or, or any kind of allied health professional. And that's when you become directly responsible for providing care to patients. And I think that's the piece, um, you know, certainly for me and, and, and many, many other doctors in the UK and internationally, which is, is the big jump because suddenly you you know you've gone through medical school and you know all the theory you've maybe passed some practical exams you've probably been on the wards a bunch of times but you've not been directly responsible for the care of patients and with that responsibility uh you know comes a lot of decision making under pressure a lot of leadership a lot of management uh, a lot of communication all of these soft skills which are so so important sorry Um, that just sounds like a nightmare first day I mean, like, <laughs> yeah. what 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 support is there for that doctor in day one, week one, month one? They can't just be yeah, checked well, in and said, "There you go, fella." You know, well, grab a well, stethoscope and do whatever you think. Yeah, really, really, really interesting. So, um, you know, probably around about even as um, recently as sort of, I'd say, ten years ago in the UK, and and, and this is true of, of anywhere internationally, but I'll, I'll use the UK as an example. Doctors started on their new rotations after graduating uh, in August, um, so the first week in August in the UK, and there was a, a piece of research done probably around about sort of 10 years ago now, um, which found that actual death rates and complication rates spiked during that first week because all these people graduated, wow. they were new to the wards, new to the, the hospitals. And when they looked at it more deeply, it wasn't just the people that, was gradu- that were graduating, it was also people who were experienced doctors or nurses, but who were changing hospital because the individual hospitals did things slightly differently. They kept medications in different locations. And that kind of onboarding piece sort of lagged behind a little bit in medicine. And it was only probably, I would say, around about six or seven years ago now that they, uh, they being the sort of General Medical Council and the Royal Colleges, introduced what's called um, a shadowing period where graduating students actually have to spend time in the hospital they're going to be working at, shadowing the people doing the job at the moment. So really an extended onboarding period. Certainly that's, when so I... That's only 10 years ago. Yeah, for sure. Oh so, my so God. You, well, I mean, certainly you know, when it's I graduated... Shocking. Yeah, crazy. I mean, when I graduated, I did, I think, a couple of days or something like that at the hospital I was going to work, which was a surgical ward and was then... Uh, you know, sort of directly responsible um, for for patients, you know, following that, having to put my skills into action. Now, that being said, you are supported, but uh, it is obviously a very stressful time for, uh, you know, people as they find out the limits, I suppose, of their, you know, their theoretical knowledge or their practical knowledge. And because it's such a busy environment, often if people don't know something, they, they, you know, they need to go and find someone in a, you know, a quite time constrained manner. And, and often people aren't always there um, to, to help in, in the time frame required. So, yeah, I think it's it's a, a really interesting aspect for, for any kind of onboarding, you know, outside of medicine. We think about things like, you know, sales professionals being onboarded, or if you don't onboard someone to your company, you, you risk them leaving and churning or the 
uh, you know, their sales quotas might not be as good as they could be. Um, but certainly in healthcare, that actually translates to, you know, clinical mistakes and, and potential mortality. Yeah, this is a terrifying conversation. Which I didn't, didn't expect this <laughs> yeah. at all. I think. Don't, don't get to hospital in August. If people don't learn anything else from this, yeah, don't get ill in August, I think is the, the, the key takeaway so far. But, uh, you know, after that sort of period of time when you're uh, your trainee doctor, you become a, a fully fledged doctor, if you like, after, was it seven years, you said? Six, seven years? Yeah, so you, you sort of, you, you finish your, your sort of what's called uh, postgraduate uh, training um, and become a consultant uh, and you can go into sort of private practice, probably around about six or seven years, depending on the specialty. GP is a bit right. quicker. Okay, so at that point then, what learning just, what, what learning is kind of, again systemic so what's happening to make sure that you as a surgeon are doing things right you could obviously still learn you're still going to have more experienced colleagues you're still going to get things wrong what's in place to try and help you keep learning just just through the fact that you're doing your job yeah, so for for every single you know doctor nurse, um, again I use surgeons because that was my role uh, as as a kind of example. You do what's called a revalidation every year. So you sit down with uh, another surgeon in your department or another doctor in your department who re revalidates you against um, all of the things that you've been doing that year. So for surgery, they'll look at your logbook, your complication rates. You'll do what's called a 360 appraisal uh, with your colleagues and with patients feeding back on things like your clinical acumen, but also your, uh, you know, your, your manner and your communication style. And they'll look at things like extra work that's been undertaken and things like whether your life support certification is still in date or whether you need to redo that. Um, and, and there are some of these certain mandatory uh, regulations and requirements that need to be updated at sort of periodic periods like three to five years for for advanced trauma and life support um, which is what every surgeon needs to do so that's kind of how it's done when right. you completely exit and it's also actually done like that while you're training so um, when I was training as an orthopedic surgeon every year you would undergo a sort of a panel review where you would be quizzed by experienced surgeons and trainers in your region they would look at competency-based assessments, so things like how many procedures you had done uh, compared to uh, a certain number that had been set by the syllabus, your rated performance in that. Um, you also, again, do a 360 appraisal with everyone that you've worked with, uh, and you also need to do what's called work-based assessments, which are things like uh, being observed communicating with a patient or being observed completing a procedure uh, where you're rated by the assessor. Uh, and that is all then fed back to this panel who then review that information and decide whether you, you pass in advance to the next year, whether you need a little bit extra time to, to get things in shape um, or whether you need to help be held back for, for more teaching and training. Right. So that's, I suppose it's, there is an, an analogy or the, sorry, there is a sort of comparison there with this kind of standard performance management processes that are within other organizations, although it sounds a lot more rigorous for obvious reasons. Yes. And you've got like kind of more, I guess, more firm measures, such as, you know, actual technical skills along certain, um, certain areas that you might find perhaps in a pilot or something like that, or in certain key engineering positions where there's a, there's a definite technical skill that you must maintain. That's less true in a lot of other roles. But still, I, I think what's interesting there is the sort of holistic nature of the 360 feedback that you talked about. A lot of us talk about 360 feedback where we might sort of ask a few names with a few friendly faces of people that we know like us. And with a sort of a, a sort of a tacit agreement that people will genuinely be positive and nice. There isn't necessarily a kind of a structured 360 approach always in that. So I think that that's a very interesting point. I'm, I'm just thinking throughout the whole year as you're doing your operations 
what kind of conversations are you having with your colleagues, with other people that are in the operating theatre or in the, the um, surgery or what do you call it, the, the room where you do the consultant consulting room? Uh, yeah, right? yes, yeah, yeah. Going from American clinics. television here. Yeah, no, so my, no that's that's that, that's spot on. So I have, yeah, I have I a mean, degree in Grey's Anatomy. This is where I'm coming from here. So <laughs> that, that, please that's, do that's pick me up. What you need, actually. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. If you want to get more specific, house. But, but sort of what, weird what, and wonderful stuff. In what way are you kind of um, supporting each other, challenging each other, helping each other learn? What conversations are you having in that sort of environment? Yeah, so it's a great question. So. Um, uh, I mean, it's, it's very interesting, particularly for um, things like your communication ability with patients. Um, what you will uh, invariably do is you will be working in a clinic environment or an operating department with um, a surgeon more senior to you. And, and either that is someone who is your allocated trainer. So that's normally a, a completely qualified consultant surgeon who will you'll be sort of working with them for uh, six to 12 months. They will sort of train you through the operations or the clinic presentations that they will usually see in their own practice and they will uh, sit in with you through some assessed episodes and, and, and kind of score you on that. So as an example, if I was doing um, a hip surgery job with a hip surgeon, they would observe me and assist me doing a hip replacement and they would feed back at the end of the procedure, offer me some tips and we'd sit down and do a reflective piece and I would write that up and it would be stored in what's called my logbook. And the surgeon would rate my competency in that uh, procedure from me being aware of, say, the steps, but unable to perform that uh, procedure without assistance uh, and without guidance, uh, all the way through to me being able to perform that with the surgeon unscrubbed in a in a different room, just coming in and offering advice should I need it. And and that's really sort of the the, the competency based assessment that that goes on, breaking the different operations down into the steps and and doing quite a lot of reflection on on uh, your own performance and all this sort of almost apprenticeship type learning in in that uh, respect. When it comes to the communications uh, side of things. Uh, that's very different and that's something that has really sort of come out i would say over again the last sort of 10 to 15 years um so previously surgeons were just assessed um, on how many operations they did or time spent operating in a hospital um, now we've gone to a much more competency-based system what happens is you will be assessed uh, communicating with patients uh, you'll be assessed with your communication ability to the scrub team in a theater and you'll be asked to do individual assessments and, and reflective pieces around your leadership communication and that will be sort of fed back directly and then a lot of that soft skill side which in, in healthcare is called human factors but but is effectively the same thing a lot of that is also done in simulated environments uh, in what's called simulation centers in hospitals which are these kind of buildings which sit uh, either within a university or next to a hospital where they've got completely mocked up recreations of, of your hospital wards or your operating theaters and they allow for role plays to be run for staff at, at different times and different stages of their career where those kind of difficult and uh, you know infrequent but but high hazard events can be recreated in a safe space um, and, and again you're assessed on that under pressure i did want to delve a bit deeper on the simulation stuff but I just just before you do that i just before we do that I, I think it would be interesting just to reflect on what you're saying there because again it sounds very rigorous and a lot more rigorous than you would expect a learning ecosystem in any other organization but i sometimes wonder why we 
in other organizations, we just let our leaders, managers, salespeople, whatever, oftentimes just go off. And there isn't that. There might be a bit of an initial training course and there might be a kind of a, a yearly performance management thing or even a half yearly, even quarterly. But it's fairly, it's not particularly focused on, on learning um, or even performance that much in many cases. I'm just interesting and, and I'm reflecting on how I could apply some of that in my organization. Already got a couple of ideas. But I would just, anybody listening to that, although even if you don't work in a medical organization, you might think this doesn't really work for me. Well, actually, I reckon some of it probably would. You know, in what way could you be supervised, that apprentice approach? What way could you take out what are those key interventions you have, whether that's running a meeting, public speaking, uh, influencing external stakeholders, whatever it might be that's part of your role? Is there a way that you could be building in this kind of sort of apprenticeship or lifelong learning approach that we're talking about here? just a challenge to the listeners because it was certainly running through my head at that moment even though you you we couldn't apply the exact same thing there's a lot of that same rigor and thinking that we could actually find a way to do a lot more of yeah absolutely i mean i, th- I think it was um one of the big you know things for me when i i left healthcare and and uh founded a company and scaled that company up to sort of you know 50 60 people in, in quite a short space of time was in certainly in kind of the corporate space that isn't that, I guess, rigor or you know syllabus necessarily for different yeah, roles. And exactly. That, that that really kind of interested me because what you then end up with is either sort of a trade-off where you're providing people with quite generic skills through something like, say, a sort of learning experience or aggregation platform, um, where where you know your people are then asked to just go and, and look at sort of what they like from various sources, or you, you go the other way and, and do sort of quite focus coaching um uh, around your your different people run by by different managers but of course then you need to train your managers to to be coaches themselves and to be effective communicators and that was one of the big things for me and i think you know again for anyone listening what i'd encourage you to do would be to to look at your own sort of kpis or okrs or uh, whatever your sort of business outcomes are because if, if you think about what we are i suppose assessing in, in healthcare it's very much are you capable to provide care to the patients and and in surgery can you do an operation safely uh, to then get the patient better uh, and get them out of the hospital and if you you know, turn that almost on its head in a business capacity um, if you said to a salesperson you know you you're being assessed there on your sales technique how you open or how you close a sales conversation so that you can you know close a deal generate revenue for the company and 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 that's you know related to your KPIs and your objectives and then you can start sort of breaking those things down into how you deliver that training and teaching so for me where i learned an operation i would learn the steps first and then i'd be assessed and i'd I'd have reviews you know for someone like a salesperson uh you would probably go through the theory first if if you're brand new to um sales or you're a, a sales development representative or something like that and then you would look at doing maybe some mock cold calls or you would have your calls recorded or observed by your trainer and you would come back and and have that kind of critique focusing on one key area such as building rapport with with someone you're speaking with and that that's very much sort of the competency-based training style of medicine but then applied to a business setting which i think surprisingly few organizations do i think the very good ones do do that but i think if things like sales they probably do I think in sales, they probably do more than more than many others. And you've given some good examples there. And I know a lot of sales organizations are quite focused there. They they may be still at the phase of going back to the metrics you talked about, like how many operations duration. They may still be a bit driven by the numerical measures. But I think a lot of sales uh, organizations do have pretty good learning 
around that because it is so key, clearly linked to a key um, a KPI. I, I I think it's those kind of softer areas where you're looking at things like management leadership or where you know people are not in it with the, the it's less clear that a behaviour leads to a direct outcome that the organisation values. There's a much kind of more uh, complex connection. I think those yeah, are the areas I mean, where where we're not so easily doing stuff. We I mean like coaching. I do coaching a lot of coaching, and there is a structure around that where I need to be supervised, I need to journal, etc. Similar to what you were talking about. But then pretty much everything else I do, I'm on my own. Yeah, I do learn, but then like many of these kind of things, and you mentioned before about management learning, a lot of it's it's either self-selecting. And then usually you get the people who are most interested in learning about management are probably the ones that least need it. Or you need to find a way to make it systemic so it's part just part of the job. And that's the bit that I'm really interested in cracking. How can we make these kind of learning things that you're talking about in medicine just part of the job in these areas of work where we don't currently do that, such as just, just using management as an example? No, I, th- I think it's a really good example. I th- I, but I, you know, I, th- I think um, you could also look at the gaps in something like sales training, where yes, you've got the metrics, but uh, an individual sort of soft skills in say how they build rapport with um, a sales prospect or how they communicate, or you know, some of these things are, are, are very variable. And there's no, you know, typically there's no kind of right or wrong way of doing. It. And it's the same with management and leadership style and things like that. Um, a, a lot of it even in healthcare is, is taught kind of experientially. And a lot of these training opportunities are quite kind of variable and serendipitous. So, uh, you know, for me, when I, I learned how to say break bad news to a patient, that that's a very difficult um, thing to, to, you know, develop for yourself. And you would say, so, you know, say in medical school, you might do role play and that would give you a structure. But when you're actually then doing it real in real life around a specific case, it's very, very different. And everything from your cadence of how you speak to the information that you're delivering to some of the frameworks that um, you can employ, such as providing a safety net and having something like someone like a relative present when you're writing that bad news, it, it is, is very kind of variable. And I think a lot of that is then sort of learnt on the job experientially and is then therefore dependent on where you're working based on you know the, the, the different types of cases that you see or the different patients you encounter or the different trainers you work with. So you might work with someone who's an amazing communicator, therefore you adapt some of their communication style into your own as you're learning and that works really well for you. Whereas you know someone else that you work with might not be as good a communicator, in which case you know you're you're not going to receive as good a teaching from them. And and it gives it's the same with managers, um, it's the sale same with any kind of trainers, whether it's sales, whether it's leadership. A lot of it is learned from experience. And I think one thing we've got to get better at, you know, as sort of learning development professionals and, and anyone um, who is, is teaching and training is how can we bring together as many different experiences for our people as possible to give them that, that depth and breadth as, as quickly and as efficiently as possible so that they can really ramp up and, and see what good and bad looks like in a safe environment uh, on demand. Yeah, and I, I, and building on that, I think there's there's something about people don't necessarily learn from experience because they may learn the wrong lesson. Uh, they may just not not take the time to particularly reflect upon it. So I also think there's something around helping people reflect upon experience and make sure that they do learn those right lessons and not just leave it to chance. So I think there's a, there's on top of what you just said, I think we do need to do that as well. I just wanted to sort of move on a bit. We were talking then about how we can build systemic learning just into people's day jobs. I wanted to just ask you a little bit because about 
obviously doctors are very, very busy. Nurses, very, very busy. Everybody in the medical profession is very, very busy. How do people make time for the more formal side of learning? Because that's always an excuse you get in other organisations, and we're probably less busy than most hospitals. So you guys do it. So how how how, how is this possible? What's the secret? Yeah, it's it's. I think it's it's a difficult question to answer because good or bad, all medics, unlike other people, because they're continuously training, also have exams during you know throughout their career, basically. So when you're training to be a surgeon, you have to sit on average, I say, sort of three, maybe four exams, which you yourself have to pay for, and then you have to revise for around your day job as a surgeon. And those exams cost in the region kind of thousand pounds or about $1,500, something like that. In the US, you've got your, your board uh, certifications that you have to sit. And so because you're paying for them because they're attached to your career progression, there's a huge hook for people to actually find the time to learn because if they don't, their career is fundamentally going to stagnate. Uh, now, now, whether you agree with that or not, that is a sort of a mandated part of um, your job as a, a healthcare professional. You have to go and sit through th- these exams. You have to revise for them. I think in, in terms of things like soft skills or, or, or elements of your own practice that you want to improve outside of work, I think healthcare professionals are just very incentivized in general to be as good as they can be to help patients because I think they're just so passionate about helping people. I think that's part of kind of the culture of, of, of how you're uh, you know, selected into medicine. In terms of you know, doing the actual learning, whether it's for exams or, or whether it is for you know, someone like me wanting to be very good at an operation, I, I think that there's elements of people and organizations making time uh, for training. So in healthcare, for example, after an operation, after I did a surgical procedure, I would always find time to exactly, as you said, John, you know, reflect on that procedure, write down um, what went well, what went poorly, uh, and add that to my, my logbook so that I could remember it. Um, and that was just something that was kind of ingrained to me by everybody that I worked with. And for things like your, your examinations, you have to sit, whether it's for sort of a multiple choice question paper or a, a clinical in-person exam. There are lots of things like online question banks or uh, you know, video systems and video courses that, that people will adopt and, and use in the library um, around their kind of work time on their breaks or after work. So I think you know, just to summarize that, I think you know, healthcare professionals are very incentivized to learn and to improve themselves, partly because of exams and partly because of the clinical responsibilities. But I think, you know, high performers in any business or any role will make time for self-improvement. And I think that's an element where the, you know, the, the tools and the technology can really assist people, because if you're providing people who are going to find that time and make that time with the best resources they will for the most part use them if they know it's relevant to them and it's relevant to their career progression so i think that that for me moving from medicine to a a sort of a business setting is the key point which is medics find the time because they know what they're learning is relevant to their career progression i think in a business setting if we provide people with opportunities and resources that they know are relevant to them they will use them um, provided they are good so so that that was sort of some of my takeaways from you know leaving that medical setting and getting into the business setting as you're talking then i'm thinking that in the medical profession the idea of learning is not only just expected it's seen as a positive thing as you said high performers learn was not, not the exact words you said but something like that high performers are keen to learn and outside of that, in the business setting, I don't think that's as clear. I don't think there is that same cultural link between the two. 
and it's almost kind of like uh, if you need training and quite often when you talk about learning people hear the word training and they think that's what you're saying and I'm, and I'm not usually when I say learning I mean learning I don't mean training necessarily but I think a lot of people in outside of that profession would see oh I need man- management training for example as a weakness therefore I'm doing something mm-hmm. wrong and, and therefore would possibly want to distance themselves from being associated with formal uh, training opportunities. And that's, that's not always true, but there is definitely, a, and less true now perhaps than it was a few years ago. But I still think culturally there is a difference there, that high performance is in your profession is connected to dedication to learning. That isn't, I don't think, as true in other organizations or in other professions. Well, I don't know, maybe other professions, I don't know, but certainly not in the kind of business worlds where I tend to operate. And, and I wonder yeah. how we can culturally influence that so that high performance, lifelong learning start to feel like much more, much closer. Yeah, it's, it's a really great point. And I think I think it is that sort of cultural piece. And I think, you know, I, I think I think I'm not a huge fan of things like social media, but I think one of the positives of social media is, is it's very accessible to see people and their stories and, and particularly people who've been successful. So, uh, you know, people like Warren Buffett's got a great quote where he says, you know, if the best investment I ever made was in my Dale Carnegie course to improve my, my soft skills. And I, I, I think that the more that people sort of invest in that self-development, whether it's inside work, whether it's outside work, particularly around things like soft skills and, you know, your leadership, your communication style, those are going to turn you into a high performer and they're going to, you know, completely change your life. I, I gave a, a TEDx talk last month around the, the power of, of power skills, as I call them, or soft skills, and how that can, you know, change your life if, if you do dedicate yourself to, to learning them. And I think, you know, historically people thought things like soft skills or communication or empathy couldn't be learned, um, you know, just like sort of, uh, to be a good sports person, you can necessarily learn that. And, and again, that's all been disproven by uh, folks like Carol Dweck and, and her book Into the Growth Mindset and so forth. And uh, I think that is now becoming more prominent, but I think it's just a case of continuing to bang the drum and continue to explain to people that actually learning how to learn and investing in yourself are, are the most important skills that you should be focusing on as a baseline for your career, in my opinion. Yeah, I completely agree with you. And those those soft skills or power skills, as you call them, I, I tend to call them behavioral skills. But I I think you're absolutely right because it doesn't just affect your performance at work. It affects your whole life if you can just improve on those things. And we all need to improve on those uh, somewhere or other. So let, let's focus on that for the um, ju- just the last little bit of, of this. What methods have you got? Have you developed techniques? Have you got for helping people develop power skills? Yeah, so I, th- I think... Again, the, the interesting thing with power skills or soft skills is there, there are so many different types of, of power skills or soft skills. So, you know, even I in, in the last sort of minute or so just mentioned communication, empathy. There's also things like time management, um, which is technically sort of a, a power or soft skill. And so I think one thing that I would recommend to everyone is you focus on the one that you think you're weakest at or the one that thinks going to give you the most output from from any time invested in improving it and and once you sort of define that that there are a number of things you can do so i think at a base level just acknowledging that uh your your power skills can be improved and they're best improved by feedback like any skill so um i think if we are learning to play an instrument for example or we are uh you know learning uh, a sport or a new skill we kind of inherently know now that we're going to suck at it to begin with Um, but when it comes to things like communicating or public speaking or leadership often receiving feedback on that is very personal because 
uh, us humans are kind of social animals and we don't like to be judged because we think it's going to kind of impact our, our social capital. And I think sort of getting over that that sort of bit of ego and, and disconnecting your identity and who you are from like the skill that you are learning is, is absolutely critical. And I think once you've done that, going back to what we were talking about earlier, you'll then be much more receptive for asking people for feedback on things like, you know, my communication skills, my, my public speaking ability, my time management. Can you review this? Can you, can you look at a sales recording? Can you come and watch me present in this team meeting and, and feedback? And I think then it falls onto the organizations to provide some kind of training structure to help people progress in practical ways, whether that is uh, in-person role plays, uh, whether it is analysis of sort of Zoom calls or team calls, uh, whether it is using an external coaching organization or consulting organization, or whether it's using something like um, what, what my company Verti does, which is using newer technology like virtual reality to, to put people into these repeatable uh, scenarios with virtual avatars that they can practice anywhere. Whatever you choose, if you put your people through that and then analyze them and look at their performance and, and really sort of coach them through it, that's the best way, in my opinion, to, to really kind of accelerate and uh, and have long-term retention of of your understanding of what soft skills and power skills are. And so I guess just to summarize, I sort of pick one, one to focus on to begin with. I'd detach your kind of ego from whatever you're learning and improving. I'd get as much feedback on it as possible. And I'd put yourself into those hard situations like standing up in front of an audience and public speaking or like providing feedback to an employee and, and having that assessed and then continuing to improve and, and committing to that sort of long-term improvement journey. You mentioned there about the kind of immersive technology that you work on in your organization, your, the company that you're with now. Can you just give us a bit more on that? Because when you say an avatar, I'm now imagining kind of pale blue people in a forest in, on, on a distant planet. And I'm presuming that, that that's not quite what you're talking about. So what kind of, how will that look if I'm uh, engaging with that kind of immersive technology? Yeah, so not not too dissimilar. So it uses the same computer generated graphics and imagery. Uh, looks a little bit like a video game, but the, the humans are um, not blue. Uh, they're, they're normal looking humans. Um, but what the uh, the technology and it's allows, on Earth. Uh, I don't have to go to another planet. I'm presuming. No, you you probably we probably could uh, allow that, <laughs> but our, our focus is very much on, on kind of recreating um, you know realistic environments like an office or a um, a doctor's office or, or something like that where. Uh, the learner can be dropped into this realistic scenario. Uh, they're presented either on a their, their computer screen or in a virtual reality headset with a, a human um, that, that is computer generated. And then we use some artificial intelligence technology, a bit like an Amazon Alexa, where the learner can talk to and have a conversation with that avatar in a safe environment within a, a confined role play scenario. So the role play might be, please give a performance review to this employee who's struggling or please provide some feedback to this employee or uh, you know please fire this employee or please hire this employee and this allows for some of those uh, you know quite challenging and difficult scenarios that, that not everyone um, has necessarily been through a hundred times to be practiced repeatedly and on demand in a safe space but it will also actually pull out a lot of data so it will track the conversation it will identify what people are saying, how they're saying it, and allow that kind of soft skills, quite subjective data to be kind of 
delivered objectively back to the learner and to the organization as a whole, um, which, which is the thing that sort of really excited me because whenever I did sort of role play training in healthcare, you would often have someone sort of assessing your ability to communicate with a patient but the feedback they gave was often quite subjective based on their own experience. So they might say, yep, to me, that looked pretty good. Whereas a different assessor might say, well, from my experience, you should do uh, this. You should you know, have better eye contact or you should sit down or you should change your vocal pattern. And so by collecting all that data and making it a bit more objective, uh, we're, we're really sort of reducing variability and allowing that training to be as good as it can be. I mean, that sounds almost prescriptive. And obviously these things, that there wasn't necessarily any one way to do things. How do you get past that issue? Yeah, so it's a great question. So um, I think one of the, the really interesting things is that is in, in any conversation, you've got sort of a beginning and an end. So um, for example, in, in those scenarios I gave, if you are having to uh, sort of have a performance review with an employee, you um, want to, at the beginning, obviously introduce yourself, set the scene for what's happening. At the middle somewhere, you want to actually deliver the performance information, whether that's good or bad. And at the end, you want to come out with a, a result. And, and if it's a poor performance review that you're delivering, it might be, these are the next steps we're going to do to improve things or does this person have insight into that they in that they are failing so there are these kind of objectives throughout the conversation which are set but the uh, actual learner can get to those in any way they want so you might have a very unique conversation style you might want to build rapport for a long period of time but you need to hit some of those objectives because that's really the point of, of, of those focused conversations. And, and that's where we sort of all bring it back. And then we can actually analyze how people got there, which is really interesting because at an organizational level, you can look at who has you know got there and who's got the best score uh, and compare that to real world data. And, and sales, again, is, is a really good example there. So you could look at how your highest performing salesperson performs in one of these environments and compare that to the rest of your team in a very quick um, fashion by being able to see all the different conversation logs and then provide even more sort of bespoke training to other members of the sales team around that. Right. That sounds, yeah, that sounds really interesting. So there is a kind of an overall structure of, as you say, objectives you need to meet, but there is still that opportunity for people to get there their own way. And, and I yes. think that that's something that sometimes when it comes to these behavioral skills or power skills is sometimes the pushback is that people are being taught things which are somehow inauthentic. And I, I, I don't buy this argument, by the way, I'm, I'm sort of just, just putting it out there because sometimes people say this and, uh, and uh, some authentic ways of doing things just aren't very good. They're just less good than other things. They're just less professional. They're just um, and, and there are parts of our authentic selves that we have to actually kind of hide or at least used differently in a professional environment because they're just not as effective. They don't give us the outcomes we want. And therefore, we need to ad adopt skills which aren't necessarily natural for us, or at least not initially. Is that something that you're addressing in this as well? Because if you're going into people's behavioral skills, power skills... Yeah, so I think you know, very much in a, in a similar way to traditional role play or I suppose traditional coaching does, um, we'll, we'll look at the, the actual individual um, and, and see... Some yeah, I think that's manner. what I meant. Yeah, I, I, I wasn't particularly happy with that question I just asked. I was just thinking what a rubbish question it was, but <laughs> you, you interpreted it brilliantly. Thank you. That's what I mean to say is the individual. Um, whenever you put in, anything into some sort of you know, virtual reality application kind of scenario, you're necessarily not dealing with individuals in the same way as, as a you know one-to-one -one coach would, for example. Yeah, ab absolutely, and and I think that's the you know the critical piece, which is the uh, the individual learner will receive a sort of a personalized 
log of, of, of what they've done and they can go through these scenarios as many times as they like so they can themselves reflect on on their own performance and, and how quickly they sort of got to a point or what they said or what they did or the reactions of the avatar and then they can you know, improve that really just like you would do in in real life so um if for example you know i was giving a performance review or disciplining um an employee for uh you know bullying or, or, or something like this which doesn't happen often but when it does it's uh, you know quite a sort of a high pressure and, and emotive setting me as the person who is delivering that information or handling that conversation if i haven't done that very many times i might come out of it thinking gosh you know i wish i'd done this differently or i know when i said that the the, the other person reacted in a certain way and and so you know if you think about how we do things in real life at the moment or in a role play it's very much that personalized reflective piece and and what the the technology is sort of helping with here is rather than you trying to remember all the things you said or, or sort of look back at a conversation you had say a week ago if, if you're asked to reflect on it a bit later you've got that information there you can see what you did you can see what you can improve and you can try things a different way again in a safe environment almost immediately after if you wish um so again it's just accelerating that kind of personal development of the individual going through it okay well thank you very much for that alex um it's been a really interesting conversation to sort of talk around and uh, how the l d works how how learning works in the medical profession and how you've applied that more in the business setting as well so thank you very much for that if people want to know more about the work you do is there a, a link or a something they can google to find out more yeah for sure so um i've got if, if you're interested in learning development which i assume a lot of the listeners are um, yeah I've they must be own... if they've got this far honestly <laughs> yeah. I, I i've got my own website at uh, alexanderfyoung.com um, and then my company is called verti v-i-r-t-i.com um, i'm alexander f young on all socials verti is verti labs um, on all socials um, and uh, yeah I do a sort of a weekly YouTube show as well uh, that looks at sort of how learners can learn more effectively uh, again going back to what we were talking about about instilling the importance of being a lifelong learner to everyone in, in every role okay I'm going to follow you on Twitter now <laughs> I'm going to do that now before I forget I'll look, I'll look for you on YouTube as well thank you very much for your time really appreciated it and I'll definitely follow you on social media so thank you very much and uh Hope to speak to you again soon. No pleasure. Thanks so much. Really great speaking with you.